0: Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 9, 1884-85 vs England, Four Captains and a Financial Dispute. Four days before the 1884 Australians left England, the next English side departed for the colonies. Once again, this was a professional side organised by the old firm of Lillywhite, Shaw and Shrewsbury. Like the last tour, Lillywhite and Shaw will be there as umpire and manager respectively, while Shrewsbury will be the captain. Key professionals such as Walter Reed, Piling and Barlow refused £300 to join. However, the team was still considered by Shaw one of the strongest to tour Australia and included big names such as George Ulliot, Billy Barnes and William Scotton. The tour would also see the debut of several key figures of the next decade of English test cricket, including Bobby Peel and Johnny Briggs. John Conway was chosen to be the English contact to organise games against local sides and had already scheduled seven such matches of first-class status, which would include four games that would later be recorded as tests. The English landed in South Australia in late October, where the local authorities were keen to arrange the first Test match in Adelaide as an addition to the four that were already planned. After much negotiation, they managed to convince the English to agree to the match to be played in early December, for which they would be heavily financially compensated for such. Having read about the exorbitant profits made by the Australians during the 1884 tour, which included 100% of the gate takings from the Lord's Test, the English wanted their fair share of the cricketing pie. The English played two non-first class matches against South Australian sides before heading to Melbourne to prepare for a fixture against Victoria. Meanwhile, Murdoch's side was making their way back. Having first landed in Western Australia, the South Australian authorities sent a telegram to convince them to agree to terms to play the English in Adelaide. However, no response was received until the Australian side finally returned to Melbourne. They agreed to the match in Adelaide, but after hearing about the fee the English had negotiated, demanded a higher share of money. Their experience in England led them to believe they were the biggest spectator drawcard, as without the top Australian players, the associations couldn't expect bumper crowds. The fact that they had self-organised the 1884 tour had also disconnected them from the state authorities. This belief extended to participation for local sides, as Victorian members of Murdoch's side, such as Blackham, McDonald, and Boyle demanded a share of the gate for their participation in the match between Victoria and the English. This attitude led to none of them participating in a match that the English won comfortably by 118 runs. The same dispute played out with the New South Wales players such as Murdoch with their association, with a weaker New South Wales leading on the first innings before losing by four wickets. this dispute between Murdoch's players and the Victorian and New South Wales associations would rumble along for the next month before exploding on the eve of the second test. Meanwhile, the two sides made their way to Adelaide for what was to be the inaugural test match in that city. Only members of the 1884 squad were considered for the Australian side. Spoffith had delayed his return from England due to the death of a relative, whilst Midwinter was sick with congestion. Their spots were taken by Cooper, somewhat recovered from the injury he had suffered, and the tour manager Alexander. Both men would be playing their second and what was to be their final tests. Giffen was also struggling with rheumatism, but took his spot in the side. The English were in good form and it was expected to be a fine contest. The South Australian Association, in order to maximise their profits, given how much they had promised to both sides, set entry at two shillings. This backlight, however, as a disappointing crowd of only five thousand were on hand for the first day, as Murdoch won the toss and chose to bat on a splendid pitch. Bannerman and McDonald opened the batting, with McDonald dominating an opening partnership of 33, including some deft cuts for four before Bannerman was dismissed LBW to Peel for two. The captain strode to the crease to loud cheers, but could only make five before skying a ball to Hunter. McDonald stood tall and was unbeaten just short of his fifty as lunch was taken at 2 for 56. Following the resumption of play. McDonald continued to dominate the scoring, punishing the bowling of Ulliet to the point he was replaced by Flowers. Tough Scott was content to play second fiddle, but was bowled for 19 just as he was looking to up the scoring. This brought Blackham to the crease. McDonald was soon after dropped by Bates on 79, just after the hundred was brought up. This let off led to rapid partnership between the two Victorians, with both punishing the bowling. McDonald brought up his hundred in under three hours and celebrated by cutting Barnes twice the four. His prolific cut shot was soon to be his downfall, however, as he chopped the ball back onto the stumps from Adderwell for a magnificent 124, becoming the first player to make hundreds in back-to-back test matches after his effort at the Oval on the 1884 Tour. This left the Australians in a strong position of 4 for 190. Blackham then dominated the following partnership with Giffen, who was able to hold up an end but not do much else due to his illness. Blackham bought a his 50 soon after the score passed 200, but was eventually out for 66 with a score on 224. With five wickets still in hand and the big hitting Bonner arriving at the crease, the Australians were set for a big score. However, the Australian batsmen lost their heads facing the slow round arms of Bates, who had already claimed Blackham. None of the remaining Australian batsmen would reach double figures, with four more wickets falling to Bates in quick succession, all caught in the outfield. The final six wickets would fall for 19 runs, leaving the Australians all out at the end of the day's play for 243. Bates' five wickets were the standout for the English, with Peel also claiming three on test debut. In order to attract more attendance, the local authorities halved the price of admission. This would lead to 10,000 in attendance on the Saturday as the English commenced their innings. The captain Shrewsbury opened with Scotland, but was dismissed as a score on 11 for a duck, bowl by Boyle. This brought Ulliott to the crease. He immediately started playing big shots, hitting one so hard that Bannerman's finger was damaged trying to field it, leading to him being off the field for the majority of the day. The absence of the Australian's best fielder was a big loss, especially as they were already missing their most incisive bowler in Spoth. Following a short interruption where a shower passed over the ground, Alleyet dominated the partnership while Scotton played anchor. A difficult stumping chance was missed by Blackham off Alleyet, with the two batsmen making it to lunch break soon after. Upon returning, the Australians found it difficult to restrain Uliot, who was hitting big. He brought up a half-century, and soon after the Team 100 was raised, Boyle was brought back into the attack and finally coaxed Uliot to hit a catch to Alexander, dismissed for 68. The score was 2 for 107 as Barnes arrived to join Scotland. The two would bat out until the end of the day, although the Australians missed numerous chances, including another stumping by a surprisingly poor Blackham. Numerous bowlers were tried, but the English handled it with ease. Both batsmen passed 50 late in the afternoon, and by the time Rain stopped play for the day, they had nearly reached the Australian score, ending the day on 2 for 233. The match resumed on the Monday following the rest day, with Rain still threatening and the pitch much more difficult for batting. The two not out batsmen played masterfully, however, navigating particularly difficult bowling from Giffen, who consistently challenged the batsmen's stumps. Scotton attempted to hit Boyle but could only offer a return catch, which was dropped. The single game from this took the English past the Australian score, and was soon after, in raising the 250, that Barnes brought up his 100, his first in test. The score would reach 282 before the Australians were finally able to claim a wicket, third time lucky for Blackham as he stumped Scott off Giffen. The Notts man had batted for almost six hours in compiling his 82, and had shared an 175-run partnership with Barnes. English wickets then fell with regularity, as Palmer took advantage of the fine bowling conditions, including bowling Barnes with a Yorker for a grand 134. He had batted for a near-on five hours and hit seven boundaries. The English innings would end soon after for 369, a lead of 126, with Palmer claiming another five-wicket haul, finishing with 581 off 73 overs. The Australians were well behind on the match and were already effectively one wicket down, as Bannerman would be unable to bat. There were still three hours left of the day's play, and the pitch remained difficult for batting. The two highest scorers from the first innings opened together, with and being promoted to join Centurion McDonnell. Blacken couldn't repeat his efforts at the first innings and was bowled for 11, whilst Murdoch followed soon after for 7, both victims of Bobby Peel. McDonald, however, continued batting in his free flowing style and found a strong ally in Giffen, who was batting with more fluency than in the first innings. McDonald soon passed 50 and, after surviving a simple chance when Bates dropped him mid off, looked set to become the first player to score 200s in a test match. However, run run short of reaching parity of the English, a misunderstanding between the two batsmen caused McDonald to be run out for 83. Scott then fell for one, but Giffen and Cooper managed to make it to the end of the day's play, with the Australians on 4-152, a lead of just 26. More rain greeted the players on the morning of the fourth day, and the wicket was considered almost impossible to bat on. After only eight runs had been scored, both Giffen and Cooper were dismissed, caught by Shrewsbury at point off Peel and Barnes respectively. Next man, Bonner would score 19, but little else was made by the rest of the batsmen, with Peel claiming the ninth and final wicket of Alexander to complete his five-wicket haul, and then the Australian innings at 191. A lead of only 65. Both English openers would be out cheaply, with Boyle and Palmer claiming a wicket apiece and leaving the English at a somewhat precarious 2 for 14. However, any chance of another famous Australian victory was lost when Shrewsby was dropped at long off by Scott when he was only on 5. In partnership with the 1st inning Centurion Barnes, the English captain took his team home without further loss, completing the victory by 8 wickets at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. This left plenty of time for Toast to celebrate the two teams in the pavilion, but the bad blood between the two sides led many English players to leave the room before hearing the toast from the Australians. This relationship breakdown was about to have major ramifications for the remainder of the tour. The second test was to take place at the MCG beginning on New Year's Day. The English team went off to play local sides in country Victoria. Meanwhile, tensions continued to be high between the touring English and Murdoch squad. The English professionals, who would generally only make ten pounds of playing in matches against the Australians on the eighteen eighty four tour, who were sharing in at least fifty percent of the gate, were hoping that it would return the favour and allow the English tourists to make some money. However, Murdoch's side held out, rejecting a 30% share of the gate to play in the Melbourne Test. Lillywhite came back with a forty percent offer, but this was still rejected. The Victorian Cricket Association, responsible for selecting the Australian side to face the tourists, was now left with the unenviable task of selecting a team from scratch. All the machinations between the two sides were laid bare on the 27th of December, just prior to the commencement of the test. The Asian newspaper revealed the correspondence between the two sides, which demonstrated how much money the Murdoch players were demanding. Public opinion then became in favour of the English, feeling that Murdoch's players were being unpatriotic. The Australians had hoped that their reputation was the only thing guaranteeing a big crowd, and as such, felt they could demand such an exorbitant fee. However, this belief had backfired on them. The Victorian Cricket Association scrambled to put together a side. Test veteran Tom Horan, who had been riding on cricket in the Australasian under the pen name Felix, and had been critical of Murdoch, was named captain. The only other player with test experience was Sammy Jones, a victim of grace's run out during the famous 1882 test. The other nine would be making their test debuts. Alfie Jarvis, who had toured England as Blackens back up in 1880, would take the gloves, breaking Blackens' consecutive test streak that went all the way back to the first ever test match. Of the other debutants, William Bruce, John Trumbull, elder brother of the more famous Hugh, and Jack Worrell was also a famous Australian rules footballer who would go on to coach premierships for Carlton and Essendon, would be semi-regular fixtures in tests over the next few years. For the other five, this would be their only test matches. Most notable among those was Samuel Morris, originally from Hobart, but also the son of West Indian gold prospectors, making him the first man of colour to play test cricket. The English had only one minor concern, as Elliott was injured the morning of the match. As Alfred Shaw was also injured, they had little choice but to play with although his output would be diminished. Otherwise, they went into the match unchanged. Defying expectations, 10,000 fans turned up to the first day's play, with Shrewsbury winning the toss and batting. The captain again opened with Scotton to face the debutant new ball combination of Worrell and Bruce. Bruce's left-arm mediums were a challenge, as much for their rarity, with Australia not having a left-handed opening bowler since Frank Allen's one test in 1879, particularly for Scotton, who was nearly bowled twice before double figures had been reached. Warrell also set it in on a good length, demonstrating that this fresh Australian side was not going to be a pushover. A right opportunity was missed when Morris returned the ball to the wrong end, whilst Trumbull dropped Shrewsbury when he had only made four. Finally, Bruce got his man, bowling Scotland for 13, with a score at 28. This brought the in for the first test Barnes to the wicket to join Shrewsbury. The two would see England through to the lunch break without further loss on 54. The lunch did not bring about a breaking concentration for the batsmen, as the two set about compiling a large partnership. Horan rotated his bowlers, but he was unable to restrict the scoring, despite the good fielding from the Australians. Shrewsbury and Barnes were able to turn the strike over easily, and would bring up a 100 partnership just after 3 o'clock. Horan then turned to Morris, who was the 6th bowler used. He started with a the maiden, then managed to get Barnes to play a ball onto his stumps for 58, with a score at 144. A short time later, Morris claimed his second, having Shrewsbury caught in the slips for 78. Bates scored freely for his 35, but Bruce returned to claim him. Three more quick wickets followed, including the injured Ouliet for a Golden Duck, shared between Bruce and Jones, leaving the English the precarious 7-for-204. At this stage, Adderwell joined Briggs and set about developing a partnership. The two attacked the bowling, hitting multiple boundaries. A 50-run stand was brought up, but Adderwell fell immediately after for a good rushing catch from Jones. Briggs then dominated another quick-fire stand, ending the day on 65-not-out. The fall of the ninth wicket was the last act of the day, peel-out for five, with England on a strong 303. Last man Hunter joined Briggs at the beginning of day two and took a little time getting settled in, hitting two boundaries off the first over from Bruce. Briggs continued in the same vein as the previous night and the partnership increased rapidly. 50 runs was reached within half an hour and following shortly after came Briggs 100. The Australian's bowling and fielding efforts were poor, dropping two chances off Briggs as the partnership closed on 100. Finally, a high hit from Briggs brought about his downfall as the Australian captain took an amazing catch, running back and taking in his left hand. Briggs' great innings was concluded on 121, whilst Hunter was on 39 not out. English innings had ended on 401. The Australians opened with Jones and Morris after the lunch break. Morris didn't last long, being out LBW for four in the second over to Adderwell. Warren then came to the crease to join the other player with previous Texas experience in the side. The two took the score to 46 before Peel struck, trapping Jones in front for 19. This brought Chumple to the wicket, and the two batsmen set in to occupy the crease, with the scoring slowing to a trickle. Finally, the opening bowls tied and need to be replaced, and with this the scoring began to increase. Horan survived a difficult chance and began to show his quality, finding the boundary of regularity. The Hunter was brought up as Horan raises his half-century, and he looked set for a big score. However, the return of Peel to the wicket saw the Australian captain hit a leaning edge to point to be dismissed for 63. Jarvis replaced him and, in partnership with Trumbull, took the Australians to stumps at 3 for 151. Still 250 runs behind, but a respectable position, nonetheless. Day 3 was oppressively hot. Even so, 6,000 patrons braved the heat to watch the day's play. The first ball nearly brought a wicket as Trumbull edged behind off Bates, but safely. Following this, the English reverted to off Fury, bowling wide outside the off-stump to a crescent of fielders between point and mid-off. There were a number of misunderstandings nearly resulting in run-outs, but the batsman was saved by poor fielding from the Englishman. Finally, with 190 on the board, Trumbull tried to up the scoring, but only managed to hit a catch back to Barnes, falling for 59. Four wickets would soon become seven as Pope, Ma and Musgrove all fell cheaply, the Australians just under 200 runs behind. Jarvis was looking confident, however, and found a willing partner in Worrell. The wicketkeeper brought up his half-century and started to take every available run, looking to avoid the follow-on mark. The 50 partnership was raised in quick time, and Jarvis looked set for a century before hitting a ball high in the air off Flowers and being well-caught by Briggs running back. His 82 was the highest score of the innings and his dismissal finally ended resistance with the final two wickets falling for only a further three runs to leave the Australians all out for 279. This was still 122 runs behind and with the follow-on being 100 runs, they were asked to bat again. The wicket was now worn and more difficult for batting. Jones opened again, this time with Bruce, but was dismissed early on, clean bowled by Oulia for nine. Oren joined with Bruce, who was batting well, and took the score under 66 until Horan was caught behind right on stunts. Bruce was still in on 41 not out, with the two most experienced Australian batsmen dismissed, it was an uphill challenge to avoid defeat. The final day dawned with the Australians still 56 runs behind. They opted for the heavy roller, but this made little difference as it was almost impossible to determine how each ball was going to react to the pitch. Trumbull had joined the not out Bruce and quickly moved on to 11, was out in the same fashion as he had in the first innings, caught and bowled Barnes. Bruce was out shortly after for a well combined 45. Only Morris, who was not out 10, would reach double figures as regular wickets, mostly to Barnes, who would take six for the innings, would see the Australians only just creep past the English total, finishing on 126. The four runs required were knocked off on the first ball of the second over, with Scotland finishing the match with an emphatic boundary, matching the 10-wicket margin of victory, taking a 2-0 lead in the series. The match had been a profitable one, despite the absence of the leading Australian players. However, the result being an emphatic one for the English saw a softening of the public to the want away players. Horan, who had previously criticized Murdoch and his players, now wrote that he hoped that they would return. However, the Victorian authorities were unmoved, refusing to select the Victorian members of Murdoch's squad in Victorian and Australian matches they organized for the rest of the season. In response, the Victorian players released their account of their negotiations with the English tour organizer, John Conway, particularly around his underhand dealings when it came to the monetary arrangements of the tour, which further swayed public opinion. Murdoch himself decided to give the game away, retiring to his newly established law practice. At 30 years old, the apparent loss of the best Australian batsman of his generation would be an incalculable one. In the month-a-half and following the completion of the second test, the English toured country New South Wales and Queensland playing local sides. They played against a New South Wales colonial side at the end of the January that included Charles Bannerman, who top-scored with 37 in an innings defeat for the local side. Finally, as the next representative match approached, the English changed managers, replacing Conway with Charles Beale, who had managed the 1882 Australians. This change opened the door to rapprochement, with four of the 1884 Australians, Alec Bannerman, Tup Scott, George Bonner, and Fred spothith accepting invitations from New South Wales Cricket Association to play the next test at the SCG. Warren, Jones, Trumbull, and Jarvis maintained their spots from the previous Test, whilst Tom Garrett, Edward Evans, and Hugh Massey, who was chosen to be captain, rounded out the side. England were again unchanged, but were Hamstrung and Barnes, their most successful bowler in the last test, argued with Shrewsbury, and refused to bowl in either innings. The new captain Massey had the first stroke of fortune when he won the toss and elected to bat. Bannerman resumed his position at the top of the order with Jones. The two Australians batted cautiously, the first session including long blocks of overs where no runs were scored. Peel and Adwell were unable to produce a breakthrough, however, and were replaced with Ooyah and Flowers. After Bannerman hit a boundary to take the score to 40 after an hour and a quarter of play, no further runs were made until lunch was taken. During the lunch break, A sharp storm, including a large amount of hail, drenched the ground, and by the time the ground was marked and ready for play, another shower forced the players from the ground. It wasn't until quarter past four that the ground was once again suitable for play, and the condition of the pitch had flipped from favouring the batsmen to the bowlers. Upon the resumption, Jones hit a boundary, but was then out in the next over after he left his crease and was stumped off Flowers for 28. Flowers also claimed the other opener soon after, when Bannerman lamely scooped a catch to peel. The Australians were now 2 for 49 with two new batsmen at the crease. Adderwell got in on the action, dismissing Horan for seven, bringing Bonner to the crease to join with Scott. Bonner played in his usual style, surviving a skied catching chance and lacing a ball to the boundary, before he and Scott were both dismissed within four runs of each other. Five for 77 would soon become seven for 83, as Massey played a rash shot to long on, followed by Jarvis being bowled first ball. Trumbull, who was compiling a decent knock, was dismissed just prior to Stumps for 13, Adderwell's fourth victim. This left Spothiff and Garrett not out, with only Evans to come, with the Australians the precarious 8 for 97. Whilst the Reign had kept the previous day's crowd to only 2,000, the precarious position of the Australians was the cause for the low crowd in attendance at the start of the second day, with only a few hundred in the stands. They were further disappointed as Spothiff charged down the wicket to Flowers off the first ball he faced, only to miss it completely and be stumped with the score on 101, with Flowers claiming his fifth for the innings. However, with Evans coming in to join Garrett, the Australians hopes of race as a 2 scored with freedom, hitting the ball to all parts of the field and handling the bowlers with ease. Flowers, Adewa, Ullya and Peel were all tried with no success, and the unwillingness of to bowl was coming back to bite the English. Garrett and Evans would survive to lunch, having taken the score to 171. Another 10-1s were added following the break, including Garrett's maiden half-century, before Ullya finally managed to catch Evans' edge and dismiss him for 33. Garrett was left unbeaten on 51, and the final wicket partnership had been worth an invaluable 80 runs. Spotheth and Garrett opened the bowling to Scotland and Shrewsbury. After five consecutive maidens, the English found the rhythm, hitting both bowlers for boundaries and quickly bringing up 20. This led to Garrett being replaced by Horan, who contributed to the tightening of the scoring. The pressure finally got to Shrewsbury, who hit a ball back to Spotheth to be dismissed for 18. The Demon then clean bowled his replacement Ullier for two, and next wall had Barnes stumped for a golden duck. Although this dismissal was more down to luck than skill, as the ball cannoned off Jarvis's pads with Barnes out of his crease. The English were now three down for 33. Scotland was holding up an end, but kept losing partners as Bates and Briggs fell cheaply to the bowling of Horan. He was in the process of building a partnership with Flowers when he was given out court behind off Horan, a decision he quite loudly argued was incorrect. soon became 7 for 82, as Reid became Horan's fourth victim. Flowers and Adderwell managed to put on 29 and were playing with confidence, but both then fell on the same score, with both Spothoth and Horan claiming a wicket apiece. The final partnership added a further 22 runs before Horan claimed the final wicket, his sixth, to leave England all out at 133, 48 runs behind. Horan claimed his test-best figures of of 6-40, while Spotheth had done the damage at the other end with 4. This brought to a close the second day's play. Play resumed on Monday following the Sunday rest day. Bonner was elevated to open with Bannerman, and the Stonewaller's style seemed to influence the big-hitting Bonner, who was uncharacteristically cautious with his play. Even so, he dominated the opening partnership, hitting 29 out of an opening stand of 37, before he was bowled by a fast Yorker from Ulya. After surviving a run-out chance off his first ball, Horan combined with Bannerman, who had been given two lives already, to take the score to 56 at lunch without further loss. Immediately upon the resumption of play, Bannerman hit a ball from Uliad to Shrewsbury at point, being dismissed for 16 in over 19 minutes of batting time. Jones replaced him and signalled his intent by hitting the third ball he faced for four. Horan and Jones ran well between the wickets and progressed the score to 91 before Jones was bowled by Adderwell. Scott came and went for four before Trumbull and Horan combined to take the score past 100. A lull followed as the bowlers got on top. Horan seemingly broke the shackles with a large hit to the leg side boundary but was bowled charging out to Bates for 36 soon after. Massey compiled 21 quick runs, but was sixth out with the score just past 150. This signaled a collapse with the Australians losing the remaining four wickets for four runs once Jarvis was dismissed at 161. Trumbull was eighth out for 32, whilst Bates did the damage with his off breaks, taking five for only 24 runs. The Australians totaled 165, left the English with 213 to make to win the game and claim the series. There was still an hour's play left on the third day. Scotland and Shrewsbury again opened the batting, but were soon separated as Spoth of clean bowled Scotland for two. yet arrived with the cut for four off the demon, but was soon run out by a direct hit from Bannerman. Barnes and Shrewsbury saw out the rest of the day with the English finishing on two for 29, still requiring 184 runs for victory. Disaster struck for the English as Barnes was out almost immediately on day four without a run being added to the score, feathering a ball from Trumbull to the keeper. Bates joined with his captain, and the two took the score on 59 before Spotheth uprooted Shrewsbury's middle stump for 24. Briggs, after scoring a solitary run, suffered the same fate as his captain, as the English fell to 5-61. Flowers joined with Bates, and who was batting with aggression? Bates' innings included a glorious hit over long on for 5 off Spotheth, but the demon would get his revenge, having him caught behind for a breezy 31. With only four wickets in hand, the English still required 121 runs for victory, and Australian success almost looked assured. Flowers and new batsman Reed had other ideas, however. Whilst Flowers worked the ball around, Reed played with power, hitting multiple boundaries off all the bowlers. The score quickly raced to 134 before Massey tried Garrett and Evans, but this had little effect on the batsman, who handled all of them with ease. The 150 came up as the deficit continued to tighten. Reed brought up his half-century as the runs required reached the 30s, with the English now well in control. Massey returned now to his strike bowler in Spotted, who finally managed to bring about the desired wicket, bowling Reed as he attempted to hit the ball to leg. Reid had made 56 with 9 boundaries and brought England to within 20 runs of victory. New batsman Adderwell couldn't handle the pressure though and was run out trying to run a bye off the first ball he faced. 8 down soon became 9 as Trumbull managed to get Peel to hit a catch behind with a score on 199. With Flowers still at the crease, having just reached his own half-century, the game was on a nice edge. New batsman Hunter hit his first ball for 2, followed the next saw over by a single from Flowers before another 2 came from Hunter. This brought the target down to just 10 runs required. A small crowd of 3,000 were transfixed with the action, having never witnessed so close a match of this quality. Trumbull's next over only cost a run, followed by another Spotheth maiden. The batsman managed to reach a single off the next over, which left Flowers facing for with only seven required. The next ball from Spotheth was short and wide, giving Flowers the opportunity to cut. However, he failed to keep the ball down, and Evans managed to take a splendid catch, leaving the Australian's six-run winners. Flowers had ended up on 56 and taken his side to the brink of victory, but couldn't close out the game. Spofford was a hero for the Australians, finishing with 6-90, and giving the English their first loss for the entirety of the Tour. It was the tightest result in Test history to that point, beating by one run the famous match at the Oval in 1882. The series was now at 2-1, and with two tests remaining, an Australian comeback was on the cards. As successful as the Tour had been on the pitch for the English to this point, financially they were not doing as well as they had hoped. To try and recoup the costs, Lillywhite petitioned the Victorian Cricket Association to overturn their decision effectively banning the Victorian players from participating in matches selected by them. The Victorian authorities refused this request, meaning that those players wouldn't appear until the following season. This ban, however, did not cover matches selected by the New South Wales authorities, who managed to convince Palmer, Giffen, McDonnell and Blackham to play in the fourth Test in Sydney. They took the places of Scott, Jarvis, Evans, and Massey, with Blackham taking over as captain. Once again, the English were unchanged, but had the advantage of being able to make use of Barnes as bowler, having overcome his disagreement with Shrewsbury. The selection of more high-profile Australian players to the Australian side and the victory in the last match saw a great increase in crowds, with 13,000 turning up for the first day's play on Saturday. Shrewsbury won the toss and chose to bat, opening with himself and Ulliet, whilst the returning Giffen and Palmer opened the bowling. Shrewsbury took a liking to Giffen, hitting him for a boundary first ball, whilst Ulliet followed his captain's lead by doing the same. The two were chancing themselves, however, with their running, with two close run-out chances being missed by the Australians. After only 19 runs had been scored, Elliott chopped an off-break from Giffen onto his stumps, falling for 10. This brought Scott to the crease, who dropped anchor, while Shrewsby did most of the scoring. Palmer was soon after replaced by Spothiff, who was welcomed to the crease with applause from the crowd. He almost immediately had a breakthrough, with Scott inside edging a ball onto his stumps, but the bails miraculously stayed on. Garrett was tried in place of Giffen, but had no impact as the score reached 50 at the lunch break. Following the resumption, Giffen returned to the bowling crease to immediate success, having Scotton caught by Blackham for four. This brought Barnes to the crease, who began attacking on an increasingly difficult pitch, with Spother's vigorous action roughing up the turf, allowing for Giffen to take advantage. Shrewsley went into his shell, which allowed Giffen time to work on him, eventually bowling the England captain for a well-compiled 40. This brought Bates to the crease, who was in similarly aggressive frame of mind as his partner. Both batsmen hit multiple boundaries, quickly raising the team 100, whilst also expertly judging quick singles to the Australian fielders. Palmer was tried, but Bates treated him with disdain, hitting him straight back over his head twice in an over. Finally, with both batsmen approaching 50s, Trumbull managed to slow the scoring. With the batsmen tied down, Giffen was finally brought back to claim his fourth wicket, bowling Barnes upon him reaching his 50. Rejoined joined Bates and poppied his approach, deciding attack was the best form of defence. The two would raise the score to 186 before the advent of Jones to the bowling crease drew a caught and bowled off Bates, who was dismissed for 64 with seven boundaries. Spothard returned to the crease and nearly had Reid caught at mid-off, but unfortunately had overstepped. Bates' replacement Flowers helped take the score past 200, but became Giffen's fifth victim when the South Australian once again rattled the stumps. Spothert finally claimed his first wicket soon after, having Briggs caught at point for three. Seven down two became eight, as Giffen once again disturbed the stumps, bowling Adderwell for one. It was nearly nine down, but Blackham uncharacteristically missed a stumping, allowing Reid and Peel to take the score under 252, before the former became Giffen's seventh victim of the innings, just short of his 50. The last man Hunter hit Spother for two consecutive boundaries, but was bowled going for a third, with a demon confounding him with the slower one. The English innings had finished on a reasonable score of 269, especially considering the increasingly difficult nature of the pitch. Giffen's seven for 117 of 52 overs was a dominant bowling performance, whilst he was ably supported by Spother, who took two. There was 10 minutes of play left after the pitcher being rolled, with the Australians opening with Palmer and Garrett. Palmer couldn't survive the first over the innings from Ullit, however, being bowled by a fast Yorker. Trumbull joined Garrett, and the two took the Australians to stumps without further loss on 11. A windy but otherwise fine day greeted the players as day two commenced. Trumbull did not last long, being bowled by Peel for five. McDonnell came to the crease and scored relatively quickly, cutting both Ullit and Peel for four but was caught at mid-off for 20, a promising knock cut short. With the score at 3 for 40, Bannerman came to the crease to join Garrett. Unusually, Bannerman was for once the dominant scorer in a partnership and was particularly effective on the pull shot, hitting multiple boundaries through that method. Garrett was more patient, waiting on the bad balls before taking full advantage. The two managed to take the score to 80 at lunch without further loss. Following lunch, the two batsmen were well restricted in their scoring by some excellent English fielding. Ollie, who had been bowling well into the wind, switched ends, which nearly brought about a wicket second ball as Bannerman was dropped at third man by Scotton. The increased pace from Ollie was troubling both batsmen now and seemed to unsettle Garrett enough that he played a rash shot against Barnes at the other end and was clean bowled for 38. Given joined Bannerman to help take the score beyond 100, but became Barnes' second victim when he was caught at slip for one. Warren followed soon after for nine. The Australians were now 6-119 and in danger of following on. Striding to the crease was Bonner, whose selection in the local paper Sydney Morning Herald had questioned on the first morning of the match. He was, however, about to go on to play the match-defining innings in a style that only he could manage. George John Bonner was born in Bathurst, New South Wales, on the 25th of February, 1855. A larger than my figure, both literally and figuratively, he stood six foot six inches tall. He came to promise as one of the first big hitters in the game. Despite inconsistent results and having played no first-class cricket prior, he was selected to go on the 1880 tour, making his test debut at the Oval, where he hit a ball so high that the batsmen had turned for their third run before the catch was taken. Bonner was also known for his prodigious throwing arm and famously won a bet that he could throw a ball over 100 yards the day the boat docked in England on the 1882 tour. However, he was often fighting against his natural talent and wanted to be known as a correct stroke maker. This clash between instinct and thought led to a midland career, as he was only averaging 18 across the 11 tests he had played to this point, supporting the Herald's thoughts regarding his place in the side. The crowd's hopes were resting more on Bannerman than Bonner at this stage. This belief seemed to be confirmed as Bannerman continued to play with confidence, hitting an off-drive for four, whilst Bonner was barely surviving yet, with a ball just grazing by his stunts. He was not much better against Barnes and was nearly out quarter point, with a ball just going out of reach of Shrewsbury. Bannerman brought up his 50, but a bowling change would be his undoing, as he hit a ball from Flowers to the English captain, falling for 51. At 7 for 134, the Australians were still 55 short of the on as Jones joined Bonner. Drinks were taken shortly after. Following this refreshment, Bonner began to chance his arm, streakingly edging a ball for 4 through the slips, before taking to Barnes, hitting a 4, then a 5 into the crowd off consecutive deliveries. His confidence up, even Bonner's worst shots were starting to go to the boundary, including big heaves to Cow Corner. Jones kept the scoring up at his end as the follow-on was saved with the total speeding towards 200. Bonner brought up his 50 and continued with the boundaries, including hit onto the bowling green for five. Shrewsby continued to rotate his bowlers, but with no avail. Shocks fell just out of reach of Fields and Balls just missed the stumps, but Bonner kept going, riding his luck. All yet returned, but it was now tired and didn't hold the same threat as earlier, with Bonner hitting him for consecutive fours. Another nearly caught cut shot brought up Bonner's century, his first in test matches. He was then dropped at long off by Reid, which was then followed by another shot into the bowling green, taking the Australian's past English score. Finally, with the score at 288, Bonner was caught at off Barnes for 128. His innings had included three fives and 14 fours, and had only taken 115 minutes to compile. Giving Australia control of the game they had almost looked out of two hours earlier. Blackham joined Jones and the two added a further 20 runs before the close of play with no further loss. Heavy rain fell overnight, but cleared for the play to start on time. This changed the complexion of the game, with the bowling side now clearly favoured. The impact of the rain could be seen on the first ball of the day, with Jones slipping on the wet surface, leading to be run out without adding to his overnight score of 40. Spoffler was out the next over for one, ending the Australian innings on 309, a lead of 40, with Barnes taking four and yet three for the visitors. Ulliet and Shrewsby opened on a pitch almost tailor-made for their opponents, Spofforth and Palmer. The Demon nearly had Ulliet first ball of the innings, but the Yorkshireman was out soon after to Palmer, being caught at mid-off for two. Shrewsby managed to get away a boundary off a full toss, but good length balls were rearing up head-high, making batting extremely difficult. Scotton failed to score, being caught by Jones off Spofforth, while Shrewsby succumbed soon after to the same bowler for 16. Palmer and Spofforth shared the next two wickets, leaving the English at 5 for 27. Barnes and Flowers managed to hold onto their wickets until lunch, taking the to score to 42, only just past the Australian total. Things didn't improve after lunch, with both batsmen being hit on the hand from rising deliveries. Flowers finally succumbed to Palmer, cutting a rising ball to Jones at third man. Briggs and Barnes then combined for a 20 run partnership and were finally looking like taking some level of control, but Briggs was run out going for a fourth run off a bye. This signalled the end of resistance as the last three wickets fell for 10 runs. Barnes fell for 20, the top score of the innings to Spofforth with a demon claiming one more to finish with another test 5-4. Palmer, the only other bowler used, claimed the last of the innings to finish with four himself. The English innings of 77 left the Australians with only 38 runs to win. The Australians opened with McDonald and Bannerman. The two fell with only 16 runs of being made. Any chance of a major collapse was thwarted, however, as Horan and Jones batted sensibly, taking the Australia to the re- total required without further loss. The series was now 2-all and set for an exciting finish, with the fifth test set to commence only four days after the end of this one in Melbourne. However, the dispute between the Victorian Cricket Association and their cricketers was still unresolved. Despite entreaties from both the Australians and English to allow them to play, the local association stood firm, meaning that McDonald, Blackham, Palmer and Bonnet were all not considered for selection. The selectors drafted in Bruce and Jarvis, who had played earlier in the series, and handed debuts to Victorians Frank Walters and George McShane. McShane, interestingly enough, had acted as an umpire in the previous test. Warren was returned as captain. The English were once again unchanged, having been left with only 11 players as Alfred Shaw had returned to England a month before. 8,000 spectators were in attendance for the first day, which saw Horan win the toss and bat. Opening with Bruce and Bannerman, the Australians were almost immediately won down, as the English keeper Hunter failed to hold on an edge from Bruce's bat. Soon after, Bannerman failed to respond to a call for a run, which left Bruce stranded, but two English fielders collided before they could reach the ball, leading to the batsmen getting home. He was unable to make the most of these lives, however, as with the score on 21, he spooned to catch the mid off off Peel, being dismissed for 15. His opening partner was out in the next over without a run being added as Ulyett caught the edge of his bat. The Australian captain came to the crease, but only lasted one ball as Ulyett trapped him with a fast Yorker. Jones survived the hat trick ball and, in partnership with Giffen, progressed the score to 34 before both bats were out on the same score, one each to Peel and Ulyett. Jarvis and Walters were the next at the crease, but on the stroke of lunch, Walters lost his stumps to an inside edge off Ulyard. The Australians were at a perilous state of 6 of 45 as lunch was taken. Trumbull joined with Jarvis following the break and managed to see the Australians through to the first bowling change, with Barnes coming on in place of Ulyard. It was the other opening bowler in Peel that made the next breakthrough though, with Jarvis falling for 15 to a catch by Hunter. McShane made 9 on debut but fell to Barnes with Garrett joining shortly after with the score at 99. This brought the number 11 Spother to the wicket to join Trumbull, who was attending well. The demon was cheered to the wicket hoping he could produce the similar magic with the bat that he often did with the ball. He decided the best option was to attack, often charging the bowlers to hit some splendid drives. He was nearly caught off a lofted shot, but Briggs misjudged the attempt, leading to the ball falling between himself and Flowers. All yet was tried, but his pace just allowed Bother to find the boundary with even more rapidity. The 150 was raised to a great cheer as Bother's charge past Trumbull's score, even though he started 25 runs behind. He would bring up his 50 with his best shot of all, lofting one over the fence for five. This would be his final act, however, as he missed a ball from Adderwell, being clean ball for an even 50. The final pair had put on 64, with Trumbull 34 not out. Swatheth had spared some blushes, but the Australians' 163 were seen as an underperformance on a pitch that wasn't overly difficult. England opened with Scotland and Barnes, whilst the Australians commenced with Giffen, fresh off his seven-wicket haul, and Bruce. Despite the fading light, Bruce provided little challenge for the batsman, with his erratic bowling enabling a number of boundaries to be scored off him. He was replaced by Spotherth, who attempted to run out Scott for a ball played back to him, but only succeeded in striking the batsman in the back. Giffen almost had the first wicket when he bowled Barnes, but he had unfortunately overstepped. The two openers would see through to stumps at none for 44, with the Australians' lead having been reduced to 119. Following the rest day, a sunny day greeted the players. This weather wasn't enough to track the crowds, however, with lower tenants not matching the importance of the match. Giffen nearly got Barnes' first ball, but the Englishman survived to take the score past 50. However, Given and Bruce, who was far more accurate today, kept the lid on the scoring, with Bruce finally making the first break through 40 minutes into the day when he clean bowled Scotland for 27. Reid joined with Barnes and saw Barnes to his 50. However, he would only make 13, being dismissed by Giffen with a score on 96. Spother had replaced Bruce and got the new man, Ooyah, on the last ball before lunch, dismissing him with only one run further added. The English went to the break at 3 for 97, wavering slightly. Upon resumption though, the English captain almost was out soon after arriving at the crease, but a poor throw from Walters would allow him to make his ground. He had only just survived an edge that missed the outstretched club of Jarvis. After this, the two batsmen would build a solid partnership, handling the bowl as well until the score reached 141, when Barnes lofted a ball from Bruce towards the leg-side boundary, only to be well caught by Horan. He had made 74 and other than being bowler for no ball had provided no chances. Bates joined his captain and showed his attempt early, driving Bruce for two boundaries in an over. At this point, as the English approached parity with the Australian score, the locals' fielding became dire. Bates was missed by the captain, who dropped a simple catch on the boundary line. Bates was led off again, this time by Jarvis, who was missed by a significant something chance. Shrewsbury also benefited from the fielding, as McShane missed a catch off the English captain. Bates was further missed by both Jones and Bruce as the score approached 200. The Australians tried eight bowlers in all, but the dropped catches had given the English the ascendancy. Bates had accomplished all this despite feeling ill. Soon after passing 50, he asked Warren if he was allowed to retire to return to the decrease at a later time, which the Australian captain accepted. Flowers came in to replace him and would help his captain take the score past 250, before a fast Yorker from Spothill would see him dismissed for 16. New Batson, Briggs and Shrewsbury would see out the rest of the day, 5 down for 270, with the English captain not out on 54. The league was now over 100, mainly down to the worst Australian fielding performance of the season. Day three saw only a 1,000 people attendance as local hopes of an Australian victory had faded away with the previous day's play. The English would take advantage of continued poor feeling to quickly raise their total past 300, scoring 30 runs in the first half hour of play. With the bowlers having little impact, the Australians referred to Trumbull Bowling wide outside off stump to a ring of fielders to slow the scoring and hopefully draw a mistake. An impatient Briggs fell into the trap, hitting a catch to Walters, who managed to drop it. However, he repeated the same shot next ball, and this time the Australian fielder made no mistake, dismissing Briggs for 43. Adam came and went without scoring, another victim of Trumbull. This saw the return of Bates to the crease, having recovered from his illness the previous day. He attempted to continue in the same vein as the day before, but only to add seven runs to his total, hitting a high ball to Walters off Bruce to be dismissed for 61. Peel, the next man in, could not add to the total, with Trumbull claiming his third victim of the innings to leave the English at 9 for 337. Shrewsbury had held firm at the other end and was on 79, with only the last man Hunter to come, the chances of 100 were slipping away. However, the English keeper held firm and, combined with more sloppy fielding, Shrewsbury was able to head to lunch on 86. Upon the return, he accelerated quickly, dispatching the highly floated balls of Given around the ground, bringing up his century the cut for four off the South Australian. A few more runs were added at this point, with Hunter tempting the fielders with balls just hit over their heads, before Given finally managed to breach his defences, bowling him for 18. Sherucy was undefeated on one hundred and five in an English total of three hundred and eighty six. Trouble had taken three for twenty nine, just going it over and running over, but the other bowls were expensive by the standards of the day, and, combined with the abject Australian feeling, had led the English to having a commanding two hundred and twenty three run lead. Bannerman, opening with Garrett, had a life when he handed a ball between two fielders who had expected the others to go for the ball. He didn't make the most of this though, hitting Ulliott to mid off to be out for two. Garrett played a strong cut shot for four, but was soon clean-bowled by Ulya, whilst Giffen soon became the Yorkshiremen's third wicket, falling for 12. Horan and Jones then provided some stability for a while, running well between the wickets and bringing up the team 50 Soon after, though, both were out with a score on 60. The Australians now were five wickets down and still 163 behind in the fading light. Bruce and Trumbull then combined a small partnership, which included an all round five for Bruce through the covers. Trumbull decided to be aggressive, charging at flowers and hitting the ball hard over his head. However, he was shortly afterwards out for 10, LBW to Adderwell. Walters helped the Australian score reach 100, but became the seventh wicket to fall when he was caught off Flowers. Jarvis joined Barnes and saw Australia through to the end of the day at 7 of 105, with an English victory almost assured. The end came quickly on the fourth day. Jarvis was out straight away to Flowers. He then immediately came back on to act as a substitute for Barnes and took part in the next wicket to fall, with Spothert hitting a catch to him at long off. Last man McShane scored a quick dozen and was not out as Bruce became the final wicket, top scoring with 35 before becoming Adderwell's third victim. The English had achieved a crushing victory, winning by innings in 98 runs. The 3-2 victory meant the English were now undefeated in the last three series played between the two sides. However, the disputes between the teams and the absence of the many Australian stars led to the series not being as successful financially for the English tourists as they had hoped. For Australian cricket though, the summer was one of discontent. The acrimony between the biggest players and the key associations had impacted the strength of Australian cricket as well as the gate attendances. The dispute between the Victorian board and their players would only be resolved prior to the beginning of the following season. Many of the key players in Murdoch's tours would continue on, but disillusioned, would step away from the game at the peak of their powers. Others, like Harry Boyle, Horan and Massey, had played their last tests in this season. However, the dispute had raised the status of the Melbourne Cricket Club, who had developed good relationships with English players, leading to them taking on the responsibility of organising the next tour to England in 1886, a trip that would lead to one of the natives of early Australian cricket. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.